Stevens and Catherwood got to Copan and found their first Mayan ruins. And Stephen writes in his charming 19th century prose about the history of Copan, quote, Since the discovery of these ruined cities, the prevailing theory has been that they belonged to a race long anterior to that which inhabited the country at the time of the Spanish conquest. With regard to Copan, mention is made by the early Spanish historians of a place of that name situated in the same region of country in which these ruins are found, which then existed as an inhabited city, and offered formidable resistance to the Spanish arms. Though there are circumstances which seem to indicate that the city referred to was inferior in strength and solidity of construction, and of more modern origin. It stood in the old province of Chiquimula de Sierras, which was conquered by the officers of Pedro de Alvarado. But not one of the Spanish historians has given any particulars of this conquest. In 1530, the Indians of the province revolted and attempted to throw off the yoke of Spain. Hernando de Chavez was sent to subdue them, and after many sanguinary battles, he encamped before Esquipulas, a place of arms belonging to a powerful cacique, which on the fourth day, to use the words of the cacique himself, more out of respect to the public tranquility than from fear of Spanish arms, determined to surrender. And with the capital, the whole province submitted again to Spanish dominion. The cacique of Copan, whose name was Copan Calel, had been active in exciting the revolt and assisting the insurgents. Hernando de Chavez determined to punish him and marched against Copan, then one of the most opulent and most populous places of the kingdom. The camp of the cacique with his auxiliaries consisted of 30,000 men, well-disciplined and veterans in war, armed with wooden swords having stone edges, arrows, and slings. Chavez, accompanied by some horsemen, well-armed, rode to the Fosse and made sign that he wished to hold conference. The cacique answered with an arrow. A shower of arrows, stones, and darts followed, which compelled the Spaniards to retreat. The next day, Chavez made an attack upon the entrenchment. The infantry wore loose coats stuffed with cotton, swords and shields, and the horsemen wore breastplates and helmets, and their horses were covered. The Copanes had each a shield covered with the skin of the Danta on his arm, and his head guarded by bunches of feathers. The attack lasted the whole day. The Indians, with their arrows, javelins, and pikes, the heads of which were hardened by fire, maintained their ground. The Spaniards were obliged to retreat. Chavez, who had fought in the thickest of the battle, was alarmed at the difficulties of the enterprise and the danger to the credit of the Spanish arms, but received information that in one place the depth of the ditch which defended Copan was but trifling, and the next day he proceeded to the spot to make an attack there. The Copanes had watched his movements and manned the entrenchment with their bravest soldiers. The infantry were unable to make a lodgment. The cavalry came to their assistance. The Indians brought up their whole force, and the Spaniards stood like rocks, impassable to pikes, arrows, and stones. Several times they attempted to scale the entrenchments and were driven back into the fosse. Many were killed on both sides, but the battle continued without advantage to either, until a brave horseman leaped the ditch, and his horse being carried violently with his breast against the barrier, the earth and palisados gave way and the frightened horse plunged among the Indians. Other horsemen followed, and spread such terror among the Copanes that their lines were broken and they fled. 
Copan Kalel rallied at the place where he had posted a body of reserve, but, unable to resist long, retreated and left Copan to its fate. Unquote. Copan was called Shukpi by the people who lived there. It was occupied between 400 and 800 AD. The site was mostly abandoned after that. The Spanish found it and destroyed many of the codices and artifacts. And then it was forgotten, except among the people who lived in the nearby town of Copan, but they don't really count because they never made any attempt to explore or excavate or document this bit of world heritage. If it were up to them, the whole site would have been reabsorbed by the earth and completely forgotten. Two guys from a million miles away had to come and say, hey, this thing is kind of cool. And the attitude of all the locals was, whatever, you stupid gringos. Stevens and Catherwood came to a massive wall of stone towering about 100 feet in the air. Part of it was ruined, and Stevens writes, We sat down on the very edge of the wall and strove in vain to penetrate the mystery by which we were surrounded. Who were the people that built this city? In the ruined cities of Egypt, even in long-lost Petra, the stranger knows the story of the people whose vestiges are around him. America, say historians, was peopled by savages. But savages never reared these structures. We asked the Indians who made them, and their dull answer was, who knows? There were no associations connected with the place. None of those stirring recollections which hallow Rome, Athens, and the world's great mistress on the Egyptian plain. But architecture, sculpture, and painting, and all the arts which embellish life, had flourished in this overgrown forest. Orators, warriors, statesmen, beauty, ambition, and glory had lived and passed away, and no one knew that such things had been, or could tell of their past existence. Books, the records of knowledge, are silent on this theme. The city was desolate. No remnant of this race hangs around the ruins with traditions handed down from father to son and from generation to generation. It lay before us like a shattered bark in the midst of the ocean. Her masts gone, her name effaced, her crew perished, and none to tell whence she came, to whom she belonged, how long on her voyage, or what caused her destruction. Her lost people to be traced only by some fancied resemblance in the construction of the vessel, and perhaps never to be known at all. The place where we sat, was it a citadel from which an unknown people had sounded the trumpet of war, or a temple for the worship of the god of peace, or did the inhabitants worship the idols made with their own hands and offer sacrifices on the stones before them? All was mystery, dark, impenetrable mystery and every circumstance increased it. In Egypt, the colossal skeletons of gigantic temples stand in the unwatered sands in all the nakedness of desolation. Here, an immense forest shrouded the ruins, hiding them from sight, heightening the impression and moral effect, and giving an intensity and almost wildness to the interest. Unquote. They followed their guide, who hacked through the jungle with his machete. There were 15 of these stone monuments. Some of them had fallen and were covered in vines and roots and decay. It was a quiet place. The only noises were monkeys jumping from tree to tree. They walked around a bit more in a bit of a daze and went back to the village. They recruited a bunch of people to help them explore the site and do a little minor excavation. 
and they caused a scandal when they brushed their teeth. Some of the locals thought they were doctors, I guess, because soon they had a dozen patients with various ailments. They explored Copan for something like two weeks. Stevens writes about it for a hundred pages. I'm not exaggerating. If it's not a hundred pages, it's got to be close. They really dove into the work. During their time in Copan, Stevens bought the site from the owner for 50 bucks. I'm one of the most pro-capitalism people on earth, but I don't know about this bit. I understand owning cars. Maybe you own lots of cars. Maybe you own a building, or maybe you own a thousand buildings. But you own a Mayan city? I'm sure some government forced Stevens to sell it to them, but that's not any better. I'm sure lots of people have lots of problems with these guys showing up and buying the place and digging up artifacts. I have nothing to say to those people. Copan would have been completely lost to history if they didn't show up. My only wish is that they would have showed up a few hundred years earlier and maybe put a big old wall around the archaeological sites so the invading Spaniards couldn't destroy everything. And Stevens thought he could make a fortune off these ruins. And you know what? Good. He did humanity a favor by finding and unearthing these Mayan cities. If England had collapsed instead, and Mayan explorers came poking at the ruins and wanted to A. preserve the abandoned city of London as part of world heritage, and B. make a lot of money, great, do it, because right now, in this hypothetical situation, Westminster Hall is moldering in a grave, being eaten away by time. Please dig it up and put it on display for everyone from all over the world to marvel at. Thank you, Mayan explorers. Because my ancestors apparently didn't care about it. You cared more than they did, so thank you. What's the alternative? Oh, Brandon, it was a sacred site. That's why nobody ever bothered to visit. No, you're wrong. It wasn't sacred. It was nothing. Nobody cared about it. They were happy to let the earth reabsorb every Mayan city. Every temple, every stella, every ball court, all of it, it would all be gone forever, if not for the instinct to find historical things and preserve them. And if your idea of respecting history and respecting the Mayans is to let their cities rot and dissolve underground and be forgotten, stay away from me. You're basically a nonviolent ISIS. You're not blowing up historical monuments, but your worldview produces the exact same effect over time. But what if those hypothetical Mayan explorers shipped away a bunch of London artifacts to their museums in Honduras and Guatemala? Good, because there are a hundred other ancient English archaeological sites that the Mayan explorers painstakingly unearthed and studied and codified and gave to us all. But Moctezuma's headdress is in some museum in Amsterdam or somewhere equally absurd. That needs to be in Mexico City. There's no way in hell that should be in Europe. But you guys want a few of the other Aztec artifacts? Fine. You want to put 20 or 40 Mayan objects in a museum in London? Cool, because we can go visit 20 or 40 Mayan cities and see millions of artifacts. How about this one? The Europeans didn't discover the Mayan cities. People already knew they were there. Okay, then why was everything buried? Because, as I already stated, nobody cared about the Mayan cities. Now, I don't like the effect that massive amounts of tourism is having on some of these places. I would like to see them preserved a bit better. But again, that's 
preserving them better, not letting them rot. And I don't have the answers. And I'm not in charge of the National Institute of Archaeology. None of these ruins could possibly last forever, and they have now been given a much longer life than they would have had if they hadn't been rediscovered. One more quick round of Devil's Advocate. But Brandon, 500 years of oppression. How were the locals in 1839 supposed to excavate the ruins when the evil Spaniards were nearby? Yes, that is almost a good point. But the Mayans had collapsed by 900 AD. So we have 600 years before the Spanish arrive. So that's 600 years of nobody caring about the Mayan cities. It's a little silly to expect people in 1000 AD or 1300 AD to care about preserving historical monuments. But it's still a good point. In fact, it's a brilliant point, and I deserve the Nobel Prize for making it. I know we're in decline, but we've been in decline for centuries. Is there nothing we can do? We invented zero. Come on, guys, let's get it together. We produced hyper-precise calendars. Stevens writes about buying Copan, and he says, The reader is perhaps curious to know how old cities sell in Central America. I paid $50 for Copan. There was never any difficulty about price. I offered that sum, for which Don Jose Maria thought me only a fool. If I had offered more, he probably would have considered me worse. And then again, my pointless university training kicks in, and I think, but what if Don Jose Maria was an evil Spaniard and thus had violence and oppression in his evil, horrible, tainted, white European blood? I don't know. He might have been Mayan. He might have been Spanish. Either way, he was just another local who did not care about the history of the Maya. So Stevens and Catherwood and the locals started excavating bits of the area. Catherwood stared at the statues and hieroglyphics in bewilderment. He had no way of interpreting them. He tried drawing them with his camera lucida, but he hated the drawings. They weren't right. Stevens saw him and wrote, he was standing with his feet in the mud and was drawing with gloves on to protect his hands from the mosquitoes. Two monkeys on a tree on one side appeared to be laughing at him, and I felt discouraged and despondent. In fact, I made up my mind with a pang of regret that we must abandon the idea of carrying away any materials for antiquarian speculation, and must be content with having seen them ourselves. Catherwood drew the monuments over and over again, each time getting a bit better at it. And you can find his paintings online. They're spectacular. After the Maya code was deciphered much later, you can read and understand the hieroglyphics, even though the writing on the stones themselves has now endured another nearly 200 years of erosion and defacing. Copan was a city, a relatively big one. About 9,000 people lived in the center and about 10,000 in the surrounding, what, metropolitan area? It had temples and plazas with statues and altars. Villages began forming in the area in roughly 1100 BC. Hieroglyphic monuments began appearing around 400 AD, telling the story of the dynastic line of kings. They had spent two weeks in Copan when Stevens started thinking that he was shirking his diplomatic duties. So he left, and Catherwood stayed behind to continue his work. So he got on his donkey and rode and rode and rode, and ten days later he was in Guatemala. He wrote that he had only left New York two months ago, but it felt like a year. Everybody knows that feeling. 
For me, I left the United States six years ago, but it feels like a previous life. It feels like a hundred years ago. Politically, Central America was unstable. What a surprise. On the roads, bandits and soldiers harassed anyone they could, especially foreigners. There were two plots to rob and kill Stevens. He and his cook, Augustine, shambled into Guatemala City, exhausted. They were on foot because they couldn't ride the mules anymore. He found the house of a Mr. Hall and knocked for what felt like an eternity. Finally, someone opened a window above them and said Mr. Hall was out. Stevens gave his name and the person disappeared. Then Mr. Hall opened the door. Hall said that the soldiers were mutinying due to lack of pay and they had threatened to sack the city. When Stevens knocked on the door, Hall thought it was the soldiers. So who exactly wasn't paying the soldiers? I assume it's Carrera and not Hall, because William Hall was the British vice consul in the region. But as always, what do I know? When Hall flew his flag, the soldiers fired on it, calling it an act of war. Nobody in the city left their houses at night, and Mr. Hall was shocked that Stevens had arrived without being attacked or molested, as Stevens puts it. Stevens writes... For the first time since I entered the country, I had a good bed and a pair of clean sheets. The luxury of my rest that night still lingers in my recollections, and the morning air was the most pure and invigorating I ever breathed. Guatemala City wasn't always the Spanish capital of Central America. It used to be Antigua, Guatemala, until 1773, when a series of earthquakes rocked the city. Somewhere around 500 or 600 people died, and numerous colonial buildings were damaged. The Spanish crown told people to take everything and move something like 40 miles to what is now called Guatemala City. If you go to Antigua's Wikipedia page and do a Control-F search, you'll get 44 results for the word earthquake. A chapel was destroyed by an earthquake in 1575. Construction began on a cathedral in 1545, but was hampered by frequent earthquakes. The remains of Bernal Diaz were buried in a church that was destroyed by earthquakes. Then it says, in the 16th century, there were several important earthquakes on the following dates. March 21st, 1530, September 11th, 1541, sometime in 1565, sometime in 1575, November 30, 1577, and December 23rd, 1585. And those are the important earthquakes. There are seven paragraphs dedicated to a bunch of earthquakes in the 1700s. And by the end of that section, we are at 27 appearances of the word earthquake out of 44. But the 1773 earthquake was the big one that made everybody leave. And they turned Guatemala City into what Stevens would describe in 1839 or 1840 as rivaling the best cities of Italy. He said, I have seldom been more favorably impressed with the first appearance of any city. And the only thing that pained me in a two-hour stroll through the streets was the sight of Carrera's ragged and insolent-looking soldiers. And my first idea was that in any city of Europe or the United States, the citizens, instead of submitting to be lorded over by such barbarians, would rise en masse and pitch them out of the gates. Rafael Carrera was 25 when Stevens met him. He was formerly a pig herder and now master of all Guatemala, as Stevens put it. 
He would become president of Guatemala in 1844 to 1848, and then from 1851 until his death in 1865. In 1837, two years before Stevens and Catherwood started their journey in Central America, Carrera began leading a peasant revolt, and as a result, and with help from the church, he became the de facto ruler of Guatemala. But Guatemala wasn't Guatemala in those years. It was part of what was called the Federal Republic of Central America, which only existed for about 18 years. The republic dissolved around 1841 as various countries pulled out and declared independence. Francisco Morazan was the president of the republic in its final years of relative stability. There was one president after him, but the guy only lasted about a year as the republic disintegrated. Morazan and his soldiers would push Carrera's army out of the city, but then Carrera would take the city back as soon as Morazan left. Long story short, Morazan lost, Carrera won, and he became the first president of Guatemala, eventually being declared president for life. Stevens met Carrera something like four years before he became president. It was a pretty unremarkable meeting, but this was not the last time that the two men would meet. Stevens stayed in Guatemala City, waiting for Catherwood to catch up, but that wouldn't be for weeks, so he took a trip to the ocean, and on the way he passed through Antigua. He writes, At the corner of the street was the ruined church of San Domingo, a monument to the dreadful earthquakes, which had prostrated the old capital and driven the inhabitants from their home. On each side were the ruins of churches, convents, and private residences, large and costly, some lying in masses with fronts still standing, richly ornamented with stucco, cracked and yawning, roofless, without doors or windows, and trees growing inside, above the walls. Many of the houses have been repaired. The city is repeopled, and presents a strange appearance of ruin and recovery. The inhabitants, like the dwellers over the buried Herculaneum, seem to entertain no fears of renewed disaster. And later he writes, I saw Padre Antonio Croquez, an octogenarian and the oldest living canonigo in Guatemala, who was living in the city during the earthquake which completed its destruction. He was still vigorous in frame and intellect, wrote his name with a free hand in my memorandum book, and had vivid recollections of the splendor of the city in his boyhood when, as he said, carriages rolled through it, as in the streets of Madrid. On the fatal day, he was in the church of San Francisco with two padres, one of whom, at the moment of the shock, took him by the hand and hurried him into the patio. The other was buried under the ruins of the church. He remembered that the tiles flew from the roofs of the houses in every direction. The clouds of dust were suffocating, and the people ran to the fountains to drench their thirst. The fountains were broken, and one man snatched off his hat to dip for water. The archbishop slept that night in his carriage in the plaza. He described to me the ruins of individual buildings, the dead who were dug from under them, and the confusion and terror of the inhabitants. And though his recollections were only those of a boy, he had material enough for hours of conversation. In company with the cura, we visited the interior of the cathedral. The gigantic walls were standing, but roofless. The interior was occupied as a burying ground, and the graves were shaded by a forest of dahlias and trees 70 or 80 feet high, rising above the walls. 
The grand altar stood under a cupola supported by 16 columns faced with tortoise shell and adorned with bronze medallions of exquisite workmanship. On the cornice were once placed statues of the Virgin and the Twelve Apostles in ivory, but these are all gone. And more interesting than the recollections of its ancient splendor or its mournful ruins was the empty vault where once reposed the ashes of Alvarado the Conqueror. Stevens wrote about absolutely everything during that eight-day journey to the Pacific Ocean and back. His book is called Incidents of Travel. It's largely a travelogue, but it paints a great portrait of life in 19th century Central America. But I have to leave some things out or this series will never end. And besides, we still have the British expedition to talk about. The expedition was John Caddy, his co-leader Patrick Walker, the interpreter Mr. Nod, and five soldiers. They had finished their journey upriver and were now marching across the Yucatan jungle and swamps. The swamps went on for so long that they sometimes had to make camp in them. One of the soldiers, identified as Private I. Karnick, got all kinds of sick. He held up the group by a day for the first time, and then recovered enough to continue the journey. In round two, he got so sick that he couldn't stay on his horse without someone walking alongside and making sure he didn't fall off. After two weeks like that, they emerged from the swampy, jungly nightmare and came to a cattle ranch. They stayed in the main hacienda building. Karnak's fever had worsened, and now he had dysentery as well. John Caddy speculates that the water made Karnak sick, since apparently all they could find to drink was swamp water that looked like tar. Karnak could no longer make the journey, so he stayed behind in the house of a local family, and everyone else continued ahead. Not long after, the expedition got news that Karnak was dead. They carried on, and as they were about five miles from Palenque, Caddy got tick bites so painful that he couldn't walk or ride a horse. So he stayed behind in a village, and Patrick Walker continued. The team spent a couple weeks measuring buildings and clearing away growth. Caddy made lots of sketches. Caddy and Walker both wrote reports of the whole expedition, but they were simply going through the motions. They devoted far more pages to everything besides Palenque. They wrote about local politics, geography, agriculture. They followed their orders and reported what they needed to report on, but that's the problem. They were just following orders. The expedition wasn't their idea. They didn't take any initiative. They didn't take any ownership of anything. In the end, their account of Palenque is lifeless and formal, whereas Stevens and Catherwood had the idea themselves. They dove into the work, and ultimately, their legacy speaks for itself, especially compared against the legacy of the British expedition. William Carlson writes that the British expedition was not the first to explore Palenque, and it didn't matter who got there first, but rather who made the most of it. Walker wrote four paragraphs about the ruins, and Stevens wrote 40 pages. And of course, there are Catherwood's hyper-precise drawings. So I'd like to take this opportunity to stand up straight and declare total American superiority over the British. If anybody listening wants to argue that Catherwood was British, I'll have you know that Colonel MacDonald, the guy who ordered the British expedition, called Catherwood, quote, a Yankified English artist. So he's ours. We Yankified him. Okay, now we have to get all serious again and talk about war in Central America. The war in Central America was long and complicated. 
An adequate retelling of the war is outside of the scope of this series, but we will take a few glimpses. One casualty that affected Stevens was Colonel Juan Galindo. Galindo had partially inspired Stevens to set out on this journey, and he was hoping to meet the man. Galindo was the only person to have explored both Palenque and Copan, and Stevens thought they would have gotten along well, trading stories of their explorations. Juan Galindo was born in Dublin with the name John, but history remembers him for his role in Central America. Galindo was on the liberal side, as the Federal Republic of Central America fractured and descended into civil war, with conservatives fighting liberals and separatists fighting everyone. The president of the republic, Morazan, was also on the liberal side. Morazan got his start after independence swept over Central America. Independence left a power vacuum in the region, and we all know what happens when there's a power vacuum. The forces vying for power were the conservatives and liberals, and so the conservatives included the Catholic Church and the aristocracy. The liberals were influenced by the Enlightenment and by the American and French revolutions. They wanted to weaken the power of the church and develop the economy. Morazan became president of the state legislature in Honduras in 1826. The next year, the conservatives seized control of the government of Guatemala and sent the army to El Salvador and Honduras to take over as much territory as possible. Morazan fled to Nicaragua, where he and his liberal allies planned a counterattack. He had no military background, but somehow he led his troops to victory against a well-trained federal army. He managed to replicate his victory in battle after battle, gaining more and more followers from all over Central America. In 1829, he captured Guatemala City and gave power back to the liberals and exiled the conservative leaders as well as the archbishop and hundreds of friars. The liberals put their policies in place, and Central America lived happily ever after. Or at least that's what might have happened if the liberal reforms had benefited anyone besides the ruling class. Life didn't change much for the vast majority before and after independence. In some ways, things actually got worse. So the liberals didn't really win the hearts and minds of the people. Meanwhile, the conservatives, especially the priests, were stirring up the peasants, agitating against the liberals, building their power base. Then in 1837, the liberals decided to poke even more at the increasingly powerful conservatives, making divorce legal and letting the state perform marriages. This was too much for the church to bear. And then came cholera. The liberal government sent doctors to infected areas, but medical knowledge was insufficient and sometimes counterproductive. Doctors didn't really understand cholera and they often made it worse, resulting in more deaths than if they had done nothing. The people, understanding cholera even less than the doctors did, started coming up with conspiracy theories. So if I were the host of Central American cholera cast in, 18, in the 1830s, I would say, what's happening, folks, is the rich are poisoning our wells. They want to exterminate us and then let the big corporations take our land and sell it and develop it. So now these doctors, well, they call themselves doctors, but they're really just the final step in the extermination plan. They come in and finish off all the survivors by giving us poison instead of medicine. But we've got a new ally. His name is Rafael Carrera. He's going to help us out. So we actually confronted some of these fake doctors 
we said, hey, if your medicine is so great, take it right now. Take all of it. And guess what happened? They did. They took all the medicine and they died, which proved beyond all doubt that the medicine was actually poison. I imagine that's what somebody probably said. The doctors were forced to consume all the medicine, which, as anybody with even the tiniest bit of medical knowledge in the 21st century will understand, they took a fatal overdose of the medicine. But for the people, that was it. That was the proof they needed. The powder keg exploded. Armed revolts spread across the whole region. I'm more than happy to sit here and shake my head at the uneducated masses failing to comprehend things and deciding to blame the rich, but let's not forget that the wealthy Latin American elite in the 1800s was, well, it was probably every stereotype you can imagine, and, and they probably would come up with that kind of evil plan. This medicine overdose incident was the first time Carrera appears in the historical record. From there, he led his peasant army to victory after victory. He was one of the most powerful people in the region now, and since he had popular support, he was probably more powerful than the president, Morazan. In 1838, Carrera took Guatemala City after five days of fighting. The American diplomat DeWitt was there, and he described the fighting. On Monday, the 29th of January, at one o'clock at night, the battle commenced. The firing of musketry was kept up briskly for an hour near the western gate, from this time till Friday morning, the warfare continued day and night. On Wednesday the 31st, Carrera, with 3,000 Indians, entered the city by the eastern gate. They perpetuated many excesses, and on Thursday afternoon, barbarously murdered the vice president in the presence of his family as he was walking in the parlor with an infant in his arms. From there, the war escalated and swung back and forth. As the federal Central American Republic ended, Morazan became the head of state in El Salvador. He was elected in July 1839. Carrera declared war on El Salvador when he found out. Eventually, Morazan left his post in El Salvador and took full command of his army, sending his family to Chile by boat. Stevens rode through Leon, Nicaragua, which was then the capital of the country. The fighting left it smoldering. Half the city had been razed, and it was now occupied by the side that had killed his friend Galindo. When he got to El Salvador, he found that Morazan had just left. So Stevens chased him all over Central America, finally meeting him during one of the worst moments in Morazan's life. He had been driven out of Guatemala City by Carrera's army, losing about 40 of his most loyal officers and his eldest son, he fled the city, going southeast. He had to know everything was falling apart. They retreated for six days. Stevens was in a Salvadoran town called Awachapan. The town got word that Morazan had been defeated and was retreating back to El Salvador with Carrera in pursuit. One of Carrera's generals, Figueroa, arrived before Morazan did. When the general got word that Morazan was approaching the town, he and his men rode off to fight. Shots were fired, and then riderless horses came back in the opposite direction, and the gunfight moved into the town. Eventually, the fighting died down. Morazan was victorious, at least in this little skirmish. Stevens writes, A large fire was burning before the door, and a table stood against the wall with a candle and chocolate cups on it. He was about 45 years old, 
five foot ten, thin, with a black mustache and a week's beard, and wore a military frock coat buttoned up to the throat and sword. His hat was off, and the expression on his face was mild and intelligent. Though still young, for ten years he had been the first man in the country. He had risen and sustained himself by military skill and personal bravery, always led his forces himself, had been in innumerable battles, and often wounded but never beaten. From the best information I could acquire, and from the enthusiasm with which I had heard him spoken of by his officer, and in fact by everyone else in his own state, I had conceived almost a feeling of admiration for General Morazan, and my interest in him was increased by his misfortunes. I was really at a loss how to address him, and while my mind was full of his ill-fated expedition, his first question was if his family had arrived in Costa Rica, or if I had heard anything of them. It spoke volumes that at such a moment, with the wreck of his followers before him, and the memory of his murdered companions fresh in his mind, in the overthrow of all his hopes and fortunes, his heart turned to his domestic relations. They spoke the next day, and Stevens wrote, I bade him farewell with an interest greater than I had felt for any man in the country. Little did we know the calamities that were still in store for him. That very night, most of his soldiers deserted, having been kept together only by the danger to which they were exposed while in the enemy's country. With the rest, he marched to Sonsonate, seized a vessel at the port, manning it with his own men, and sent her to Libertad, the port of San Salvador. Then he marched to the capital, where the people who had for years idolized him in power turned their backs on him in misfortune, received him with open insults in the streets. With many of his officers who were too deeply compromised to remain, he embarked for Chile. His worst enemies admit that he was exemplary in his private relations, and, what they consider no small praise, he was not sanguinary. He has now fallen and in exile, probably forever, under sentence of death if he returns. I verily believe that they have driven from their shores the best man in Central America.